Join me as we read Psalm 17. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer, it does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths, my feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people. Lord, from those of this world whose rewards is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it. And may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Well, let me start by welcoming our youth back from uh, their camp away. Uh, it's really great. I hope you had a really uh, wonderful time. I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. I'm keen today to not set the record for most people falling asleep in a sermon. Uh, so you've had a big weekend uh, for the youth. If you do need to just uh, nudge the guy next to you every now and then to make sure they're awake, uh, that'd, be, that'd be great. Um, normally, when I get to, pre- get to preach on the Psalms, I-, I think carefully, long and hard, about which Psalm I'd like to preach on. Uh, what will be helpful for us as a church and what will be good for our hearts. But I found uh, the last few times I did this, I was getting really picky. Uh, I'd take an hour or two flicking through all the Psalms and, oh, here's a good one. There's some great one-liners here, uh, but oh, the rest of that Psalm I'm not so sure about. Oh, here's a good Psalm. Oh, I like this one. Ah, oh, but I preached on that last time. Will they notice if I preach it on it again? <laughs> I decided this time I'd, I'd want to save more time, less fussing around. So I've got a new system now. Last time, I preached on Psalm 16. Today, Psalm 17. We're going to keep going. Uh, simple. Um, I think it's a good system, but it does have a bit of a downside, uh, which is that Psalm 17, I've found this week, is a really awkward psalm to preach on. Um, I don't think I'd ever choose this psalm under my old system of psalm selection, which I think tells you it's a bad system, the old one. Um, this psalm is a prayer of David, as you would have seen, and it would be great to keep uh, that, uh, that Bible reading in front of you if you're able. But as you were listening and reading along with that psalm, I'm sure you noticed how over-the-top David's confidence is uh, that, firstly, he is perfect in every way, and secondly, that God will answer his prayer. He's supremely confident. And it sits a bit awkwardly with me. Uh, I mean, this is an example of a prayer David prayed, but how does this help me pray, uh, I guess is my question. Because my first impression of this psalm was simply, who talks to God like this? Who does this? David is so certain God will answer his prayer. Have a look at verse 6. I call on you, you will answer me. 
So I figure, uh, like the sermon title says, if we can work out what David's secret is, we too can always get what we pray for. Sounds good, right? That's what we're going to try and do today. And I'll be, here it is. Here's the secret. It's actually very simple. To always get what you pray for, just like David does here, three things. First, you have to be completely perfect in every way, verses 1 to 5. Secondly, you have to be really important to God. So like verse 8, like the apple of his eye. Not just anyone, perhaps uh, being a great king of Israel will help you get what you ask for. Third, be perfect enough that you can tell God how to run the show. See those guys there? They're my enemies. You should kill them. Verse 10 to 13. So, be perfect, be really important to God's plans, and be so like-minded with God, you can do the judging for him. Do that, those three simple steps, and you will always get what you pray for. Easy. Now, of course, I'm being ridiculous. Uh, That's not what's really happening in this psalm. But even still, it kind of is. Uh, At least it feels like it as we read through. For me, it might just be me, I'm really not sure how to make David's prayer my prayer. The problem, of course, is that, uh, well, what polite Adelaidean would ever be so confident to ask someone, like, someone for anything, actually, uh, this confidently, let alone God? Uh, We're very polite here, we're very uh, self-effacing. For instance, on a Sunday morning, I hear uh, people less confidently asking aberistas for a coffee that's already sitting in a table for them right in front of them. Oh, excuse me, sorry to bother you. Are any of these coffees free to grab? I can come back later. It's no big deal. Contrast that to what David seems to be doing. He's sort of imagining uh, him walking through the veranda, pushing people out the way, gets to the front of the line. Give me my coffee now, because I'm awesome and it's your job. That's kind of what it feels like. He's ordering his double shot soy macchiato right now. Um, guess that's what he'd order. And uh, yeah, Anyway, I, if that was your order this morning, I'm not trying to offend you in any way. <laughs> Although that, if, if that was your order this morning, you probably should get used to being offended from time to time, I think. <laughs> um, David's not disrespecting God, I don't think, in this prayer. It's just that at first glance, uh, David's extreme confidence makes Psalm 17 really difficult to map uh, straight into our lives. It's hard to just pray this as our prayer. So, Question today, why do we have this prayer? Why has God given it to us? What do we learn about prayer from Psalm 17? Uh, You'll see in your leaflet, I've given you an outline to sort of help you follow where we're going today. Uh, And so I want to uh, take us through um, this psalm from three different angles. Because it doesn't map perfectly onto our lives, we need to be thoughtful with this psalm and, and look at it from three different angles. So first, we'll look at it as the prayer of David. Uh, We'll spend the most time here trying to really understand what it is that David's saying. Uh, Secondly, we'll look at it from a different angle. We'll look at this uh, because Jesus tells his disciples that the Psalms are fulfilled by him. So we're going to look secondly at this Psalm as a prayer of Jesus. And thirdly, we'll look at this as the prayer of the church. That is, we'll consider how can we pray this as the people of Jesus? There's the three things. We're doing today. So let's start with looking a bit more carefully at Psalm 17 as David's prayer. First five verses I find, I think, very puzzling. It's very puzzling. Why is David so innocent, uh, so confident in his innocence before God? So confident. Well, I started out thinking maybe the answer is that David is just saying he's innocent before God in this particular circumstance he's praying about, in this particular situation. 
We don't know what that is, by the way. It sounds a lot like when Saul and his army sort of gather around to try and kill David, but we don't know. Uh, David often found himself uh, circled by people wanting to kill him. could be anything. Verses 1 and 2, they made me think David's just praying that in this instance he's innocent. Just in this one particular situation, uh, he says in verse 1, his plea is just, his prayer isn't deceitful. So perhaps he's just asking God to see his innocence in this, this one situation. Now that would solve the problem a little bit uh, of why David is so confident, but he goes a long way beyond his initial situation, doesn't he? Have a look at verse 3. He says, I have planned no evil, my mouth has not transgressed, my feet have not stumbled. This to me all sounds like very general statements about David and his life. He's saying, I think his whole life is without fault, not just in this situation. So I thought, okay, maybe he's not uh, thinking he's perfect in this situation. Maybe then he's just saying he's kind of, uh, maybe not perfect, but his whole orientation of life is without fault. In general, not perfect, just in general, he's without fault. So verse 4, for instance, uh, perhaps he's saying, I listen to God's commands and, you know, I've tried to keep them with integrity. I've done a pretty good job. Well, again, there is a problem with that. Uh, Have a look at verse 3. David's saying God himself could probe his heart, examine him at night, test him. And I think the idea of it being at night is that's when his guard's down, there's no pretense there. But imagine doing what David is saying here. Imagine inviting God to look past how you present to the world and scrutinise every desire you have, every motivation that drives you. To examine not just how you treat people, but actually how you think and feel about those around you. Asking God to explore those things we are secretly bitter about or envious of. Knowing full well the unkind opinions we have of this or that person and even knowing what God thinks we think of him. Imagine inviting God into your heart with so much confidence as David does that, hey, you'll find me squeaky clean in every way. What makes this even more astounding is remembering that unlike in our sort of modern world where we want to be judged by our own standards, it's consistently throughout the Bible we see ourselves being judged not by our standards of ourselves, but by God's standards, which are perfection. This is an alarming invitation, I think, to invite God in to probe around and expose. So David is not checking that, uh, David is not asking God to check that he's done a good job or he's been okay. David is asking him to check that I have lived up in every single way to your standards. Honestly, who can do that? Who can do that? So, as I've thought about, I don't think David is saying, I've done overall, I've done okay. Because you can't say that uh, if that's what you're saying. After all, the Bible nowhere says, as long as we try hard enough, God will be okay with it. In fact, the more we read the Bible and what it has to say about our hearts and how perfect God's standards are, the more we cringe, or more I cringe at the thought of God probing my heart. So I don't think David's saying he's innocent just in this situation, and I don't think he's saying that overall he's innocent, or mostly. So then I thought, well, what is he saying? Well, I had this sort of brainwave. Maybe uh, David knows that faith is what makes us right with God, not the things we do. Uh, This is a great truth uh, in Scripture. We see that God justifies us by our faith, not the things we do. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to Romans chapter 4. I'll read from verse 5, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me if that's helpful. 
This is Romans chapter 4, Paul writing, explaining this idea of being justified, not by what we do, but by our faith, is what he says. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness, apart from works. And then Paul quotes David in a different psalm, Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now, isn't that wonderful? David knows full well that his righteousness before God is because of his trust in just who God is and his character. That's the point being made in Romans. God judges people right, not because of what we do, but if we trust in his forgiveness. So David knows that. He knows that's the only way innocent people, the only way we can be innocent is to be completely forgiven. So I thought maybe in Psalm 17, David is so confident he's pure because his faith has somehow, in God's sight, made him innocent. God sees no sin anymore. Now, that would be very tempting, I think, to kind of layer Romans 4 over Psalm 17 like that, but I just, I just don't think that's what David's saying in this psalm. He's not saying, um, sorry, what David is saying is his heart is pure before God, not that God sees a pure heart because of his faith. It's a bit of a puzzle. If you're feeling a bit confused about these first five verses, uh, welcome to my week. It's been a bit of a weird one. The question I've been trying to answer is, why is David so confident about his innocence before God? We know anything about the life of David. Uh, We know he's a man who is is sinful like the rest of us. So, today I've just given you a few possibilities. Some of them make a bit of sense about why David is confident in his innocence. But, I'll be honest, I think it's a puzzle. Maybe I'm missing something obvious here. I've got a six-week-old at home. I'm not sleeping as much as I normally would. Perhaps you could point out to me what I've missed. But for now, I think it's okay to say, let's leave verses 1 to 5 as a puzzle for the moment uh, because we're going to look at this psalm from a few different angles. Maybe we'll find a different way to to reconcile what's going on. For now, let's keep looking at this psalm of David uh, and move on to verses 6 to 9 because the real basis for David's confidence, whatever else we say about 1 to 5, verses 6 to 9 show us, I think, the real heart of the psalm and the real centre of David's confidence. Uh, Right at the start, I was quite cynical uh, in my reading, making it sound like David was confident that he was really important and really good. And there is truth to that. David was uh, the most important king in the Old Testament. But the bigger truth David knows here, not his own importance, the bigger truth here in verses 6 to 9 is that David knows who God is. Just have a look at that second half of verse 7. I'll, I'll paraphrase it slightly. David knows God is the one who saves those who take refuge in him. God saves those who take refuge in him. That's who God is. That's a huge part of how he operates in our world. That's in his nature. He saves those who turn to him. David knows that full well from his own experience. Psalm after psalm, David praising God for his countless acts of mercy. And so if you learn nothing else from this psalm, please note this today. All of our prayers and all of our confidence in praying comes entirely from knowing God's mercy to those who need help. We know God's mercy, and so we pray. And perhaps to help us remember the kind of God we're talking to here, verse 8, verse eight paints a picture for us. It's a wonderful picture, I think, of how precious God's people are in his eyes. David asked to be kept like the apple of your eye. That's like the pupil. 
Now, uh, in my experience, uh, the um, well, actually, some of you, most of you won't be surprised if you know me. I've got a lot of experience in, in bar fights. Uh, I'm pretty regularly in bars, just getting in fights on a Saturday night. Um, and one of the things I've learned in my... Men- actually, I, in the movies I've watched about bar fights, uh, one of the things I've learned uh, is you protect your eyes in a fight, don't you? If someone comes at you with a pool cue or a glass, you, you protect your eyes impulsively. You don't even have to think about it. You just do it. You know your eyes are precious. Perhaps an example that's more realistic in my own life is I have a two-year-old who keeps poking parts of my face. When he's going for the eye, your eye knows about it before your brain does. It closes and it shuts away. You impulsively protect the pupil of your eye, don't you? Uh, So too, the picture of the hen here, the mother hen that gathers her chicks under her wings when there's any sense of danger. It's an impulse. It's almost like David is saying here, God's impulse is to protect his people. He doesn't even think about it. It's so core to his nature. It's part of who he is. And David is so confident of this that he prays. But perhaps uh, this kind of confidence that God treasures you, uh, treasures us, maybe we know I'm not the king of Israel, why would God uh, protect me in every sort of situation? We might not share that same confidence that God will protect us that David has. Am I as precious as David in God's eyes? That's a fair question. But again, we'll come back to that uh, and we'll look at this psalm in a different angle to shed some light on that question. Let's continue looking at this psalm of David because as we get to verses 10 to 15, we get finally to the content of his prayer, what it is he's actually asking God to do. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, Some bad people want to kill David and David says, wouldn't it be better if they die? Uh, That's kind of uh, the prayer. And verse 13, David actually wants God to intervene, uh, not just circumstances to kind of work out okay. He's asking God to rise up to bring them down with his sword. So it is a prayer for safety, Uh, from his enemies, but it's not just a prayer for safety. I've skipped over a key word here back in verse 2, and you'll see it again in verse 15. It's the word vindicate. David wants God to vindicate him. Now, it's a great word, isn't it? Vindicate. Uh, To be proven who is in the right, to be vindicated. To show uh, that God is really on your side. You're vindicated. God striking down David's enemies, it would vindicate David. It would show everyone David really is God's anointed king. God really is on his side keeping his promises. So David is asking God to show everyone that David is right to trust God. He's not a fool. David is asking that his faith, his trust in God would be vindicated. Now, I was saying in passing, uh, verse 14 is an odd one. Uh, It has a lot to say about uh, the children of the wicked in a way that is a bit unsettling, I think. Um, I'll just say for today that different translations uh, say very different things uh, in verse 14. Uh, It's a bit hard to work out exactly what David is intending to say here. I'll I'll spare you the details from the original Hebrew uh, because I don't know any Hebrew whatsoever. Um, But mostly, I just want to say verse 14, again, seems to be about David's vindication. His enemies, we see in verse 14, they seek their reward in this life. Uh, And that, of course, will have implications for the children of the wicked, one way or another. In contrast, verse 15, David seeks his satisfaction not in this world, but satisfaction in the one who made it. Now, can I tell you what I think is odd about verse 15? It's a wonderful standalone verse, isn't it? Like, if you just took this out of the rest of the psalm, uh, it would be a great memory verse, and it would be a great memory verse for this week. I just think it's odd, because you can take it out from the rest of the psalm, and the rest of the psalm still makes sense. That is, Psalm 15 is just, it doesn't actually seem to fit the flow of the psalm. 
What I mean is, um, David is asking for vindication, which would, I think, mean that God kills the bad guys. That would be vindication. Everyone will know he's the king if that happens. But that's not what he says in verse 15. David says he will be vindicated, not when the bad guys die, but when he sees God's face. What's even more strange is that expression, like in the Old Testament, you might have heard, no one can see God's face and live. So the question here with verse 15 is, does David want vindication being rescued from his enemies? Or is he expecting vindication to be perhaps when he awakens from death, to see God and be satisfied with his likeness? I find this all very puzzling. Is he confident he won't die or indifferent because he knows it doesn't matter if he does? Which is it? David's prayer is a puzzle to me, and uh, if you're feeling I've just confused you thoroughly this morning, I apologise to some degree for that. Um, But I think we can all see it's actually not an easy prayer to pray for ourselves, is it? At least not with the same confidence David has. Should we be puzzled by Psalms like this? Actually, yes. Uh, The answer is yes. We should find puzzles all through the Old Testament. We should find that as we read something, we think this doesn't quite add up. It doesn't make sense. And I say that because that's what Jesus says. The Psalms are not complete until Jesus fulfills them. The Psalms are not complete until Jesus fulfills them. So uh, in Luke 24, I think we'll have this up on the screen behind me, Jesus tells his disciples, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Psalm 17 only makes sense. It's only fulfilled in Jesus. So what I want to do now is look at it from a different angle, this time as the prayer of Jesus. And I want to say, thankfully, Psalm 17 makes perfect sense on the lips of Jesus. There are no puzzles left. For instance, of all the people who have ever lived, only Jesus can say with a straight face to God the Father, yes, look all through my heart, explore it all you want. You will literally find no wickedness there. Only Jesus can say, I will call on you and you will answer me. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says, if you're taking notes. John 11, uh, just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he prays out loud, he says, Father, I know you always hear me. He's confident. Every time he prays, his Father hears him. Jesus is the only one who can say that, I think. Uh, Especially in scriptures, that's the main example we see. God the Father hears his prayers always. The other thing we see fulfilled in Jesus, verses 9 to 12, think about the cross and read these verses again. You realise it's eerily setting the scene perfectly for the crucifixion that happens a thousand years after David writes these words. Think about what happens. Jesus' enemies, they track him down stealthily like lions. On the cross, they circle around him. They're callously, viciously, arrogantly mocking him. They're watching their prey die. Now, we know that on the cross, Jesus doesn't pray his enemies are struck down uh, like David is doing here. We know he prays that uh, the Father might forgive them. But remember, Psalm 17 is a prayer for vindication. And there is no one in history who needs vindication more than Jesus. He was a man who claimed to be king, who claimed to be God's own son. And he didn't end up on a throne or in a castle. He was publicly humiliated, mocked, and executed like a common criminal on a cross. On the lips of Jesus, as he heads to the cross, verse 15 here is the prayer of confidence in his Father. Jesus says, as for me, I will be vindicated when I see your face. 
Jesus trusts and has such great confidence the cross is not the end for him. Because he knows his vindication is coming. And it did. That first Easter, the resurrection was the vindication for Jesus. It proved he was right all along. If you're sort of reading through uh, the account of Jesus' life with a sort of a cynical or critical eye, he doesn't look like he's a king. Actually, by most people's reckoning, Jesus was a loser. In every way, he was poor, uh, didn't have connections. And he said things that just were outrageous. He was misguided at best, perhaps even crazy for many. But in his resurrection, he's vindicated. He's proven right in every way. He was proven to be God's eternal king. So do you see how that puzzle uh, we had with David and how he could pray this prayer, it actually does make perfect sense as we see this as a prayer of Jesus, David's greater son. Jesus is the fulfilment of this psalm. But more than that, what moves us along in this is we see that Jesus himself becomes the way that we can pray this prayer. Jesus enables us to pray this prayer. So I want to look at this now in a third angle, from a third angle, as the prayer of the church. And this will be more brief. Uh, the prayer of the church, I just want to say, uh, rather than the prayer of the individual, just kind of in passing, I just want to remind us that uh, the Psalms are a communal prayer book for the community to pray, not just for individual believers. Uh, I think as Western people, we naturally sort of uh, are very individualistic in our thinking. And so our natural tendency with the Psalms is to read them as our own personal reflection piece. And that's okay. That's a good thing to do. It's just that that can make many psalms very hard to relate to because these are community psalms. These are prayers for the church, things we pray with each other and for each other. Now, the reason I mention that today is, well, for one thing, it reminds us, even if in our own life we're not surrounded by people intent on actually harming us, many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. And so we can pray for them and with them using the words of Psalm 17, praying with confidence for their vindication. But the bigger point to make today is that we can only do that because this is first the prayer of Jesus. The prayer of Jesus, and one of the most astounding claims of Christianity is the promise that if we trust Jesus, what Jesus has, we have. If Jesus has it, we have it. What God sees in Jesus, he sees in us. So in the language of the New Testament, we see regularly the description of a a Christian being united with Christ. We're united with him when we trust for our salvation. There's very, very good news that comes with that. We can genuinely come before God as blameless and pure. Not because of what I have done or at the state of my actual heart, but when when, because of Christ's pure heart, God looks at me and sees Jesus' righteousness and his blamelessness. This is the astounding truth of the gospel. In God's eyes, he he could and should probe and judge us. But instead, he chooses to probe and judge the heart of Jesus. And we are covered by his innocence. If you're in the early stages of looking into Christianity, or perhaps never really worked out uh, what it is all about, Especially today, if the thought of having God probe your heart and know exactly all about you, if that's a bit alarming, please hear today that trusting Jesus, trusting Jesus makes us righteous in God's eyes. It makes us perfect in God's eyes, which means we have nothing left to fear on Judgment Day. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He went willingly to pay for our sins 
So if we repent, if we turn from them, we have nothing left to fear on that day of judgment. And so this is the prayer of the church. Uh, It is a prayer that God will hear. Because his church is pure and blameless. We have great confidence God will hear us because of Christ's blamelessness becoming ours. We also know that the church is precious. We are important to God in a way that we wondered whether, you know, I'm important enough to hear, for God to listen to. Jesus died for the church. We are his bride, the apple of his eye. So I realise, uh, coming back to the sermon title this morning, uh, the uh, how to always get what you uh, pray for, I realise this might sound a little bit like an anticlimax. But if that's what you want, to always get what you pray for, all you need to do is keep praying that Jesus would vindicate his church. He will do that every single time. Now, it might look like uh, what, it, what David was after, being vindicated in this world, uh, that people would be spared from persecution and, and death. That is a good prayer to pray, and we should have confidence that God will be just and right as he answers it. But we have 100% confidence in the eventual vindication of the church. Because ultimately, what it will look like is billions of Christians throughout time, throughout history, in their lives they looked like the losers. The Christians who were torn apart by animals in Roman arenas or those who were rotting in North Korean prison camps. And this is far less extreme, but even those who just have to put up with thinly veiled disdain in the workplace every day because of the name of Jesus. Every single one of us, as we see Jesus face to face, will be vindicated. Our trust will be proven right. And if we always want to have our prayers answered, I think we should pray that we would live like people who will be vindicated on that day. That is, I think what David is so confident about is his eventual vindication. That's what makes him so confident in this psalm. He knows that God will prove his trust to be right. And that means David prays with confidence. He is confident that God, God will probably rescue him from his enemies, but either way, he will be vindicated so he doesn't lose heart. It's the same with us. Knowing we will be vindicated, we pray that we would live like it. And God will always answer that prayer. That is, if we pray to be more generous so we might invest more in the kingdom, God will help us be more generous. He will answer that prayer. If we pray to be more patient, God will answer that prayer. If we pray to be more courageous, telling others about Jesus, those are the confident prayers of people who know we are vindicated. And God will answer those prayers every time. Verse 15, let me read again. As for me, I will be vindicated when I see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. That really is a precious verse, isn't it? I hope that's something you can come back to during the week and sort of mull over and reflect on and pray through. It reminds us our satisfaction isn't in this world. It's not where we try and find satisfaction. I find that a great relief. Of course, living in this world is good. There's wonderful things to enjoy. But there are times when we just feel the cost of following Jesus so strongly. It can be tempting at times to think that we're missing out. Uh, I could have so much more if it wasn't for uh, all my investing in the kingdom and, and just the cost of following Jesus. It's a relief to be reminded that we are not missing out on anything. Far from it. We are looking forward to confidence with a day where we'll hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I also love the word vindication. Um, I think it's because I just love being right and being proven to be right. I don't know. I also just don't like being a loser. Perhaps you can share that with me. I don't know. 
No one likes losing or being the loser. I'm not sure what it is. Um, Maybe for me it was one of the side effects of 2020 being a bit of an unsettling year or just having more uh, time in my own head. I'm not sure. Uh, It might just be a stage of life I'm in or having less sleep at the moment. But whatever it is, I've really needed Psalm 17 to remind me that uh, my vindication is still to come. It's refocused me, I think, uh, and my desires and my hopes. I don't know what it was uh, I was sort of been uh, wrestling with, but there was something in my mind and I thought it was all just sort of settled with being less content being a follower of Jesus, Jesus recently. Could blame 2020, but I don't know what it is. I think the things of this world were sort of of more interest than usual, uh, more interest in housing and investment, and I think on top of that, just counting the cost, sometimes bitterly, of being a follower of Jesus... Uh, what it's cost me uh, socially or financially. I don't know why that was, but I found uh, Psalm 17 has sort of shaken me out of it a little bit. And I hope it will for you as well, if that's your experience. If perhaps you're finding that somehow your desires and hopes are not quite as centred on Christ as they once were. Psalm 17 and the confidence we should have that God will vindicate us is something we should be really thankful for. If we're confident in our eventual vindication and our satisfaction, it helps us live more confidently now, counting the cost of following Jesus, gladly, willingly, going back time and time again and not considering the cost of following Jesus, because after all, he paid it all anyway, didn't he? We can come again just renewed with joy at his mercy. And we praise him like we should. Would you join me in prayer? Hear us, Lord. Our plea is just. Listen to our cry. Turn your ear to us and hear our prayer. Show us the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Please keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us in the shadow of your wings. Lord Jesus, we pray you would give us every confidence that you will build your church and that you will vindicate your people that you will satisfy and vindicate each of us uh, in your presence forever. So I ask you to help us live with a confidence now, not fixed on things of this world, but with eyes fixed on that glorious future. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.